Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Dave DeCamp of antiwar.com. I really appreciate Dave coming on the show today. If you are a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Um, In today's episode, I am joined by Dave DeCamp. Dave is a first-time guest on the show. Dave is with antiwar.com. Actually, Dave, I'll ask, could you help to give an adequate introduction for the sake of this episode who is Dave DeCamp? Yes, so I'm the news editor of antiwar.com. So if you go on antiwar.com, you'll see the top section of the page is news. And I um, basically what I do is, you know, I sort through lots of news for the day and I write up my own articles covering the U.S. foreign policy news from our, you know, anti-war, non-interventionist perspective, um, which I think is a pretty valuable uh, resource for people. Um, so that's my main job over there because it's a pretty big job uh, considering how much news there is, especially now. Um, and then also I do a daily podcast called Anti-War News where I basically read the top of the page at antiwar.com, all the articles I wrote. And we also run stuff from other s- sources. We have um, the guys at the Libertarian Institute have also been doing a lot of uh, writing for us as well. So, um, yeah, that's that's what I'm focused on now is uh, – kind of providing people the news from our uh, unique perspective and trying to find the truth in the in all the mess. Dave, this is the first time we've um, spoke with each other. Uh, summary of me is I'm a 40-year-old man, uh, uh, grew up as a Republican. I voted as recently in 2016. I voted for Donald Trump. Never really thought about the topic of war much at all. Um, but then when COVID happened in 2020, I started to look into some different things, kind of had a what the fuck moment and really kind of dove into a lot of different stuff since 2020, the books I've been reading, 
the content I've been consuming has ultimately been preparing me for this Israeli uh, war that we're now seeing because through the Ukrainian war, my Republican friends, of course, it was convenient for them. They're anti the war. They're anti Biden's war. Of course they are. But now we stumbled onto this. So we see a little bit of a, there's a moment here. And, and I, mm-hmm. my friends and, and family that I've grown up with my whole life, according to my Facebook feed, probably think I've went off the deep end with some bizarre, maybe bad acid or something. I don't know what, they, <laughs> I don't know what they think, but maybe there's paranoia or something along those lines. But I've, I've seen this as like a Harry Brown. Not, I'm not saying I'm Harry Brown, but like in this type of a moment, I didn't recognize it back in 2001 at all. I supported it. I was 18 years old um, in 2002, actually. So I was able to vote ever since 2002, and I always did. I always voted Republican, and I supported the wars that seemed like they made sense. Mm. Um, But what do you think of my description? Is that a common occurrence? Yeah. And, you know, it's good to hear, you know, somebody like you kind of open up to this pretty relatively recently in 2020, you know, because been hearing a lot more of that, especially with the Ukraine war, people more, uh, you know, that have voted Republican that are more on the right. My own story, I haven't really been doing this very long. I started writing for antiwar.com in about 2018. And at the time, I considered myself a leftist. Um, because I was always anti-war. It was always like kind of the only political identity that I had for a long time. And when I was young, I mean, I'm 33 now, so I was pretty young when 9-11 happened. But, you know, in high school, it was the George W. Bush years, and it was the only people I really saw were the leftists, supposedly. And I always did like Ron Paul when I heard him talk. Um, so I was always kind of open to the libertarians. But And then I found, you know, Scott Horton and those types of libertarians and that that really opened me up. And now in just recent years, I've kind of become more right wing myself. And so I was really happy, you know, it really felt like we were getting somewhere with people on the right with Ukraine. You know, we have all these new readers and listeners and people, you know, uh, sharing our stuff on social media that were right wing Americans. And like, you know, it really, uh, again, I was just happy to see it. But this whole Israel thing now, it's really disheartening because so many of them, although not all of them, but most of them are kind of going all in on this war against Gaza and buying, you know, the entire narrative. And it does feel like a post 9-11 moment. Again, I was very young, but I remember those years just the way Fox News was. And, you know, again, even, you know, it went well past 2002, that attitude, you know, it carried into, you know, the you know, when I was in high school very much. And, you know, that's what we're seeing now. If you question anything, you're pro Hamas, you hate Jews, that that's it. That that's, that's the narrative that's being pushed. Um, so yeah, it's a lot to fight against. And, um, you know, you do have to be patient with people because actually it was really the issue of Israel and Palestine that kind of opened me up, set me down on the path I went on because I learned about it when I was about 22, 23, after I graduated college, now I went to a kind of a, I didn't go to a normal college. I went to maritime college, which was, we focused on working, learning how to work on ships and things like, and took navigation classes and stuff very, and very basic history. So I didn't take much history in college, but just the fact that I was that age and I, I just always thought Israel was there. I didn't realize the modern state of Israel was founded in 1948 and it was learning that and being like, Oh, well, what else do I not know? And, you know, it turns out there's a lot. Um, so you know, it's, it's a, there's a lot of propaganda. People need to 
really look at the history of what what has happened there instead of just the first thing they hear about is this you know Hamas attack on southern Israel that's when the history started and of course this is an issue that people have been aware of for a while but when they the things that they hear about if you don't really know about the issue you just hear about kind of the Palestinian uh, response to the Israeli occupation which can be very brutal as we've seen but if you're just hearing about that uh, you know, you're not getting the full picture. Dave, my interview style is to bounce all over the place. So I apologize if I get distracted and ask you random questions. <laughs> um, what part of the country are you in? Do you mind saying you don't have to, of course, um, were you raised in a religious household? What, what type of a household were you raised in and who prompted the interest in anti-war when you were a leftist, mm-hmm. when you were young, that's actually an interesting question. What, what prompted you to get into the whole notion of being anti-war. You said it was Israel. That's kind of what it was. Yeah. So it was kind of, again, like an instinct that I had. So I grew up on Long Island. Um, I'm from New York. And I live in Virginia now, um, pretty far south of Richmond, like kind of near North Carolina border. And I really love it down here. We moved down here in 2020 uh, when we were in Brooklyn and the pandemic and lockdowns and we just kind of got out. Um, so we live out in the country now and it's really great. I mean, the difference in my life from moving from the city to the country has been pretty amazing, but, but anyway, so I, you know, going back to the George W. Bush years when I was in high school, I, you know, I was like kind of a truther, uh, but not, you know, I didn't seriously look into this stuff. It was very surface level. Like I watched loose change the documentary, which is just full of nonsense now, um, that I, you know, know more about 9-11. And so I kind of had that instinct uh, to be anti-war. But at the same time, I kind of wanted to join the military. It was very strange. And I I was talking to uh, recruiters and stuff, um, but I ended up going to Maritime College, which is a regimented school. And you get your merchant marine license. You know, I got my third mate's license to work on ships. And it was regimented and and I did ROTC. I was like going to go into the military, but I did ROTC for like a little while. And I was like, and I really hated the regimented lifestyle of college. So I'm happy I did that because I realized, you know, this is not for me. Let me just finish college and go. And I ended up working on ferries. Um, So, but I was always kind of anti-war, but again, you know, you know, when I was in college, I didn't pay attention to the news at all. I didn't really know what was going on. I remember when Syria kind of popped off. And again, it was like 2012, 2013, when I was about 22, that I remember hearing, at, you know, Abby Martin? No. So she's a leftist. And her thing, her focus has been uh, in her career has been Israel and Palestine. Um, she worked for RT when it first came up. She had a show and she would just really go after Obama for his drone strikes. And she was hardcore. So I heard her, I think, on Joe Rogan. I, I think this was one of the pivotal moments for me talking about uh, Israel and it just got me reading and it, and it didn't get me, you know, I didn't immediately start digesting all this kind of radical leftist stuff. I just started reading about the history of Israel and the founding and stuff. So that opened me up and then, uh, it was just kind of slowly built up. And then I remember around the time of the 2016 election, everybody was going after Hillary, you know, kind of not so much for her warmongering. Um, and Trump was kind of, you know, he was, uh, kind of talking out out of both sides of his mouth about foreign policy, like 
talking about how the Iraq war was a disaster, but also saying he's going to, you know, kill the terrorists and their families, which which he did. You know, he really ramped up airstrikes when he came in. So it was when Trump came in and everybody was freaking out about all this nonsense about Russia, which was clearly to me nonsense while he's bombing, you know, record levels of airstrikes in Afghanistan and Syria, Iraq. And nobody was paying attention to it. And the war in Yemen was raging that the U.S. was backing. And that's when I got like kind of more angry and passionate about it and just kind of started writing on my own and just started sending stuff to antiwar.com in 2018. I think yeah, 2018 or 2019 is when they started just publishing stuff on the blog. And I did it consistently enough that they got in touch with me and we, you know, started working together. Dave, were you raised in a religious household? Yeah, I was raised Catholic. Um and I still am Catholic. I'm a very bad Catholic, <laughs> which a lot of Catholics will say. I was going to say that that's kind of consistent. I'm also <laughs> raised Catholic, and I'd say that fits the bill for much of my family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to get back into church. I have two kids, you know, now. I have a two-year-old and a month-and-a-half-year-old, and I, you know, want to get them baptized and, you know, become a Catholic family. Um, so I'm working on that. And that's the reason why I think I cared about this stuff, because I was kind of raised uh, to care about, you know, my family always donated to charities that help people, poor people and other countries. So I was kind of raised with that idea of like kind of caring about what happens to people, you know, who are in, in other parts of the world who are much you know less fortunate than we are. And initially, it kind of that took the form of like being a bleeding heart liberal. And it was when, again, reading kind of the history about Palestine and and other parts, realizing that, well, it's actually my government is causing much of this misery. And that's when I became, you know, more of a non-interventionist and found libertarianism. Uh, but, yeah, it kind of started from being kind of a bleeding heart uh, because of, uh, you know, being raised the way I was. I think that's definitely a big part of it. And you, it sounds like I'm trying to shine a positive light on the Catholic Church, actually. I didn't mean for it to head in this direction, but um, oh, yeah. no, it sounds right. like you're attributing a little bit of your, maybe we could say philanthropic nature. It sounds like you're attributing some of that to the Catholic church or your family, at least. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Catholic church, there's a, has all, you know, plenty of things to criticize, but my family, like my mom's side of the family, is very religious and very, again, just caring and about, you know, it was just always a priority for them kind of helping people uh, and donating, you know, giving their money away and not, you know, leaving much for us. <laughs> but um, to see, that was a big part of it. And so, yeah, that definitely has impacted me. That's interesting. You mentioned that my father's side of the family. So my, my um, Dugan side of the family is my, my legal last name. Um, they're very Catholic also, and there's many of them over the years, including my father. I know that there's always different programs. I think there's their church up in Ohio is using um, like building houses for families in Haiti, mm -hmm. I think, and things like that. So that is actually pretty common within the Catholic church. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that I attribute that to a lot of just kind of, again, just thinking about it because it's just something for a lot of people. It's just not normal for you to really think about what's happening in Yemen, you know, what's happening to children there. And because most people don't realize, you know, the, I would say the vast majority of Americans don't realize how involved the U.S. has been in that war. So it's not something they would think about. Um, so I think that 
the way I was raised had me, you know, thinking about that stuff and then coming to the realization that it was my government, my tax dollars funding a lot of uh, the, you know, horrible things that were happening to people around the world. Um, okay. Well, how would you describe the current state? Uh, and I know I'm throwing a lot of big questions at you, but how's that Ukraine versus Russia war going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a really interesting story this week in Time magazine. It was actually on the cover, or I think it's on the cover for their November issue. And basically this story, their reporter uh, went back to Ukraine with Zelensky after he visited the U.S. and talked to Zelensky and his inner circle. And it basically said that Zelensky has a delusional idea that Ukraine can win the war. And that's that that was quoting his what this reporter described as his closest aides. Um, so I thought that was, you know, in a year ago, uh, someone pointed this out on Twitter. I forgot a year ago, Zelensky was the time, you know, time man of the year on the on the cover of Time magazine. So it's a real contrast to show um, how the war's going. And, and it's not so much how the war is going because Ukraine hasn't been doing well in the war for a while. It's just the perception in the West. And I think it's all fading, This, you know, the desire to keep this war going. So anyway, Ukraine launched their big counteroffensive in the beginning of June. And they didn't regain any territory, anything significant. They took, took a lot of heavy losses. And that was supposed to be the big thing. That's what they were telling us. Oh, they're going to really be able to push the Russians back. Even though it was clear at the time from just reports in the media and those discord leaks that came out said that the U.S. didn't actually think Ukraine could regain much territory. Um, but now it is clear that they didn't. So I think the, the Biden administration... The hawks in the U.S. won't want to keep this war going because they view it as a way to hurt Russia and just bog down Russia. But realistically, more people are realizing that Ukraine doesn't have a chance of driving Russia out. I assume you've heard part of the problem, the Dave Smith podcast. Oh, yeah. I was just on that recently. Yeah. Yes. OK, that's right. I did hear you on there. I'm sorry. Um, at the beginning, he says. You want to know who our next enemy is? Look at who we're funding now. Would that be consistent with what you just said about Ukraine? Well, yeah. I mean, so there's actually another really, this guy was so under the radar. The Washington Post just published this big story about how the CIA has basically built up Ukraine's intelligence services, the SBU and their uh, the GUR, which is their military intelligence they started building them up in 2015 with tens of millions of dollars in support. And the report basically attributed that support to Ukraine's ability to be able to kill people inside Russia because there's been assassinations inside Russia, including against civilians who support the war. The most notable was, uh, I forget her first name, Daria Dugina. She's the daughter of Alexander Dugin. He's this very well-known Russian philosopher, very nationalist, very pro-war. You know, he... Like a lot of Putin's opposition, he thinks Putin should have done this a long time ago and gone much harder than he is. Um, but anyway, she was killed in a car bombing. And this report said that basically all these types of assassinations and other attacks inside Russia are only possible thanks to help to support from the CIA. And what's interesting is that they quoted a former CIA guy at the end of it that said, you know, kind of worrying that what if they start killing people in in other countries? Like, what have we created here? Kind of. So, yeah, when it comes to this, the amount of weapons and stuff that we flooded into Ukraine, there's definitely could be a lot of blowback from that. 
Okay. Um, what what can you tell? Because once again, or I should say, the Kelly Patrick Show podcast is really started out in 2017 as like a local MMA podcast, jujitsu type stuff, and it has morphed into really whatever the hell I think is enjoyable. But but <laughs> my point here is, Dave. Hopefully, a lot of our audience is not they're not tuning into a anti war podcast hopefully we're getting some republicans and democrats just randomly tuning in can you give us a summary this is a very all these questions are so difficult i don't envy you what's your summary of the israeli palestine conflict so the whole conflict you the mean? whole like thing just-, just make it real simple and then at the end if you could say how we can fix it yeah okay i mean that's, that's simple a- simple yeah nice simple question I mean, the history of the conflict is um, I've actually been looking to kind of brush up on the history of the early Zionists and stuff. And there's a really good podcast by Daryl Cooper. Do you know him? Uh, Martyr Made is his podcast. I haven't listened to it yet. I've had a couple of people send me that. Yeah, I'm about I'm pretty far in. I think I've listened like 14 hours. Anyway, it's like 25 hours of the history of early Zionism. And it is really good. And Daryl Cooper is not some leftist you know partisan guy he's you know on the right and he's very serious and it's just the history and um basically you know the zionists in the zionist movement really started in the late 1800s uh it was mostly jews in eastern europe and in russia who had you know experienced pretty uh terrible things pogroms against them and they were looking for a homeland and you know based on the bible they believed that they they had a claim to what was known as Palestine, um, in the, the area that is today the state of Israel. And they they started moving there uh, very late 1800s, early 1900s. And the Zionist movement started to pick up steam when it got support from British Zionists. And after World War One or during World War One, there was the Balfour Declaration. The British basically promised that they would make this area of Palestine, uh, you know, available for this Jewish homeland. And, you know, a lot happened in these early years in the 20s and 30s. And, you know, but basically for the Arabs that lived there, um, they had these Europeans moving to their homes. And, you know, in some cases they purchased land, uh, you know, in this early stage they did. And also, I mean, again, I've been listening to this podcast by Daryl and it gets into details that I didn't realize. He's talking about how, you know, they purchased the land, you know, these land claims based on the Ottoman Empire. And it took land away from people that have lived on the, the land for generations because they were peasants, basically, that but they lived on the same farm and, and land that their great grandfathers did. Um, but anyway, uh, can I pause you? To, can I pause you real quick? Um, yeah, this is an interesting part of it. Of course, there's so much to all of this. But when I've also been consuming a bunch of information since October 7th about all this, Mm -hmm. and actually coincidentally, the year prior, I had been looking into it even, but of course more now. And some people will kind of claim, I'd say the more Zionist crowd would kind of claim that they were just the, the people who were in Palestine prior to the European Jews coming over. They were just there. They didn't even own it. They were. Is that sound like an accurate description? They 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 kind of infer that those people were there. They weren't really super civilized. They certainly didn't own the land by our standards. And so mm-hmm. that type of a uh, they gloss over the details of that type of thing. Does that sound like an okay description? Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, I mean, that's another reason 
when I talk about the moment that I started really getting into this stuff is because of those types of narratives that I heard for so long. And then you realize it's just not true. And this is specifically talking about the amount of land that was actually purchased by either the Zionists or they had this Jewish national fund that Jews around the world would donate to so they could purchase land. And then when they purchase the land, that's it. It's Jewish land. Arabs can't be on it. They can't, you know, it's always going to be uh, Jewish land. And so they had people like that moving into the country. And, you know, one point, this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but in 1948, when the state of Israel was made by the UN mandate and they kicked uh, the Palestinians out of their houses and stuff, only 11% of the land state of Israel after 1948 was purchased. The rest, they, uh, most of the Arabs there. Um, I'm so, sorry, I mean, David, yeah, again, I think we froze up for just a moment. Could you repeat that last part? You said most of the land in 1948, you said 11%. Could you repeat that, please? Yeah, sure. Um, can you, do I sound okay now? You sound okay right now. It looks like my signal's all right, I think. And you sound okay. fine now. All right. Yeah, so this is from a, a book called Coming to Palestine, which is written by Sheldon Richmond. He's a libertarian. It was published by the Libertarian Institute. But I remember in that book, it said, the, what became the state of Israel in 1948, um, the borders there, a, only 11% of that land was purchased by the early Zionists. Um, mm. The rest was land owned by the Arabs. Um, so take so, it, 89% of the land was pretty yeah. much just claimed. Like, you guys aren't mm -hmm. claiming it, we're here, it's ours. Yeah. And there was, you know, some Arabs were left there. Uh, but, you know, like today, right now, 20% of the population of it, what is considered Israel proper is Arab. Um, um, so it was about the same ratio. I can't, I don't know the number of Arabs that were there, but it's about the same ratio. I, but, I, I think I remember hearing maybe about 750,000 Arabs were displaced, were kind of, yeah. it was said, hey guys, uh, maybe they left some there, you're saying, but 750,000 is the number I've heard of people who were basically like, get the fuck out. Yeah, that's right. And they pushed them into Gaza and the West Bank and yeah, that's how they formed the state of Israel. So that's kind of the big important detail is that, um, you know, and a lot of people say, you know, justify it because of the Holocaust, which definitely gave Jews another really good reason to want their own homeland. But the Palestinians didn't do the Holocaust to the to the Jews. Um, they were just the ones, the unfortunate ones who were uh, kicked out of their land afterwards. And, you know, a lot of this history. um, just in general of the Middle East of kind of the Arabs were really screwed over by the British because during World War One, many of them agreed to rise up against the Ottoman Empire and they kind of got these guarantees that they would have their own independence after World War One. But then the British and the French carved up the Middle East and they took, you know, their control of different places. So it's part of that broader story, the the creation of the state of Israel. And that's why it's so sensitive for not just Palestinian Arabs, but the Arab world and the Muslim world in general. Okay, I kept interrupting you. So if you want to continue by educating our audience about this conflict, this Arab, uh, you know, Palestinian-Israeli conflict, I think you were right around where I interrupted you about the, about 750,000 people were kicked off yeah. their land. Yeah, so that was the, uh, the founding of Israel and the UN. So, I mean, the UN was just created because a lot of people say, oh, a UN mandate, you know, created the state of Israel. So that's what they base their legitimacy on. But just imagine being in that situation 
and getting kicked out of your house based on like a thousand, some, you know, several thousand year old land claim, because that is another thing that uh, you'll see people say is, oh, it used to be, it was called Judea, you know, 2000 years ago. So they were there first. Oh, well, but that was, you know, so long ago, how can, would you accept that if somebody came and if a, if a people from a different country, from a different part of the world started moving into your neighborhood and slowing, slowly pushing all your neighbors out and kicking your you out of your house, they say, oh, well, our ancestors lived here 2000 years ago. And the reality is a lot of the uh, ancestors of the Jews that lived there thousands of years ago uh, are the Arabs now. You know, they converted to Christianity and then they became Muslims when the region was conquered by the Arabs. Um, so, you know, it's just, again, it's it's a land claim. And that's really what this is. It's a land dispute. Um, it's become very religious just because of the people involved. But it ultimately is a modern land dispute. And the idea that you hear a lot of people say, oh, they've been fighting. You know, this has been going on for thousands of years. That's not really true. It, this is something that started in the early 1900s. And um, the big thing now after 1948, after the state of Israel was created, was the 1967 war, the Six-Day War. Uh, Israel went on the offensive. They say that it was a preemptive attack, that they were going to be attacked by all the Arab countries. But Israel started it, um, and they that's when they took over the West Bank from Jordan. Um, Jordan controlled the West Bank from 1948 to 1967. Egypt occupied the Gaza Strip from 1948 to 1967. Israel actually basically took over the whole Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, and they gave that back as part of the peace deal with Egypt. Um, and that's when they got the, the West Bank and Gaza, and they put them under military occupation, and that military occupation never ended. Uh, this, so this is the crux of the conflict. Um, now in Gaza, they'll say that they withdrew their military occupation in 2005 and they withdrew the settlements and everything, but then they put Gaza under blockade about a year after that, because there was the, this is, you know, it's a lot to get into when Hamas was elected and they, there was basically a coup, uh, infighting between Hamas and Fatah, the other Palestinian political faction. And it was that fighting that. Israel used to justify putting Gaza under blockade and they control everything that goes in and out of Gaza. And that's been the situation since 2007. So it's really an untenable situation having all these people under military occupation. And of course, there's been a lot of conflicts between, you know, 1967 and today, but, uh, the the main point here is that the people have been under military occupation and in the West Bank, you know, th there is always this idea of a two state solution, but they have been expanding Jewish settlements so much in the West Bank, especially in recent years, that it's not really realistic uh, because the Palestinians are still losing their homes and being pushed out of their homes today. It happens in East Jerusalem and, and the West Bank still. It's much slower than, you know, the original founding of the state of Israel, but this is happening. And it's a thing if you care about property rights, you know, property rights don't matter for the Arabs. They have no rights, these people living in the West Bank. And um, that's just the reality of the situation. And, you know, for antiwar.com, I sort through articles every day and almost every day you hear about violence in the West Bank against Palestinians, settler violence, basically terrorize these people. Recently, they just attacked and killed a guy who was 
uh, harvesting his olives. You know, they have these olive groves that have been there for so long and and settlers want to take over their land. And they, you know, olive harvesting season is very dangerous for the Palestinian farmers in the West Bank because they just get attacked by these settlers who, you know, fanatical people who are backed by the Israeli military. Sometimes if they do something real crazy, you know, they'll they'll arrest them or something, but they are ultimately backed by the Israeli military. So prior to October 7th, 2023, Israel was routinely moving people from their homes. If they didn't move, then maybe they just bombed the house. Well, so when it comes to uh, what they do in the West Bank is actually they demolish people's houses. What a lot of times, so Palestinians will, you know, try to build some sort of new structure uh, or new house or new business and Israel never, you know, approves the construction. So then they eventually just come in and demolish it. And I know they could also demolish old homes as well. And um, so that's something that happens. And, you know, when Netanyahu was in, not so Netanyahu came in again at the end of December 2022 and he formed this new government. Uh, but the last time he was in, a few years before that during Trump, there was like a record number of, you know, the, Israel demolishing Palestinian homes in the West Bank and approving new settlements, which, you know, these settlements are illegal under international law, which, you know, who really cares about international law, but they're actually also illegal under Israeli law. They're not supposed to be expanding these things, but they are. And um, so that's a big part of it. And, and it's been really ramping up. So, you know, we're talking about the West Bank here more because Gaza, the issue there is that they're under a military blockade and there are flare-ups once in a while. There was a big bombing campaign in 2021. Um, Hamas, or I think it was actually Islamic Jihad, which is another armed group that operates in Gaza. After there are some provocations at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is in East Jerusalem, which is a very sensitive site. You know, the Jews say it's on top of the Temple Mount and there's always clashes there, but that year it was really bad and you know israeli police stormed the al-aqsa mosque and tear gas people you know during i forget what what muslim holiday it was but a very important muslim holiday so some rockets were fired out of gaza and israel unleashed a pretty brutal bombing campaign and that was in 2021 that killed about 250 people so there's flare-ups flare-ups like that would happen a lot and this is again in more recent years um that they would do these bombing campaigns they used to kind of try to assassinate individual Hamas leaders back in the nineties and stuff, but it became, you know, they became much more heavy handed. And when they do this, they kill children and civilians. You know, if a Hamas guy is in his apartment sleeping at night and his kids are there and his neighbor's kids are there, it doesn't matter. Israel will just, you know, bomb the place, destroy the building and kill everybody that's there. Um, so that is their strategy. So, you know, and people could always also look at the suicide bombings in Jerusalem and stuff and, and in Israel throughout the 90s and, and all the stuff that Hamas has done. Um, but again, this is all under the backdrop of the military occupation and the blockade. I don't know why I do it like this, but when crazy stuff is going on, at least right now, what I've been trying to do every day is listen to like Dave Rubin or Ben Shapiro podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. That's how my brain works. It must works. be hard to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I at least learn what that side of it is. Yeah. No, it is good to know what they're saying. Um, have you heard much from 
those types of guys, and if you have a criticism of their analysis of this, the, of course, more Zionist, you know, go in and demolish Hamas type approach, I assume is what they're, sounds like that's what they're leaning toward. If you had uh, to give a criticism or two of their analysis of October 7th and the days since then, what would your, your criticism be? Well, I mean, you know, they're basically, I mean, I see Ben Shapiro, you know, I always check Ben Shapiro's Twitter and some clips that he puts up there. And, you know, he's justifying right now, you know, just killing uh, innocent civilians in Gaza because there was just this Israeli airstrike on a refugee camp in North Gaza that was on Tuesday. And it looks like at least dozens of people were killed. And this IDF spokesman was on CNN and Wolf Blitzer, of all people, who's always been very pro-Israel, he said, aren't you aware that there's innocent civilians, women, children in this refugee camp? And the guy basically said, yeah, that's the price of war. We told them to you know, evacuate to the south. And that guy said there was a Hamas. There's a there was a Hamas commander. There was one guy. I think today now they're claiming they killed more than a few uh, dozen Hamas fighters. But. I think it's very clear from the images and the and the videos of of the aftermath that a lot of innocent people were killed in this strike. And Hamas also denies that their commander was there for what that's worth. Um, but now you see, you know, Ben Shapiro basically justifying that. I mean, how can you justify that? And if you talk about, you know, just forget about the moral reason. If you talk about strategically, if you're trying to get rid of Hamas. You know, this is something Pat Buchanan is talking about people on the right said back in 2009. There's this clip that's been going around of him on saying Gaza was a concentration camp and that all the the siblings of the Palestinian children that Israel is killing today are going to grow up to be Hamas fighters. And that's definitely has happened. So if you're trying to root out a terrorist organization uh, that recruits people based on, you know, what Israel's been doing and, and killing their families and friends. I mean, you know, if you think about being in that situation, I mean, what are, what else are these people supposed to do? You know, I'm not trying to justify any sort of terrorist attack, but if you're like a young guy living in Gaza and you're, you're, you know, some of your family, you know, these people live as very big families, you know, this cousins and they live in the same buildings and, you know, sometimes airstrikes wipe out, dozens of people that were in the same family. So the survivors, if they're young, what are they going to do? And when they grow up, the unemployment rate in Gaza for young people is 70%. They have no prospects. They can't go anywhere. You know, it's just a breeding ground for, for a organization like Hamas to, to recruit. And they're just creating more of that. And we know Hamas has these very extensive tunnels under, under, underground in Gaza. So how many of them are they actually killing? They're, most of them are probably down there in the tunnels, waiting it out, going up to fight the Israeli ground invasion that's happening now. Um, so that's the thing. If you talk to people again, back talking about Daryl Cooper again, he does a podcast with Jocko. Uh, what's his last name? Wilnick, mm -hmm. the Navy SEAL guy. Yep. He was saying recently that they have to stop bombing Gaza. They have to go in there and treat it like counterterrorism um, and not like, you know, just indiscriminate bombing. That's not going to do it. Uh, you know, I think if Israel had their way, they right they want to obliterate the place and push all the Palestinians out and take it over. That's what they want. It's very clear. There's a leaked document from the Israeli intelligence ministry that said they want to push all the Palestinians out into Egypt. The thing stopping that is Egypt. They don't want that. Um, so, but anyway, you're asking me about, you know, what Ben Shapiro and them were saying. 
Um, I think that just the fact that the strategy, if you really care about eliminating Hamas, you know, is not, it's not a good strategy. If you want to, if you care about eliminating the radicals, you're just creating more of them, uh, you know, unless they just want them to kill everybody, which, you know, it's hard to think that that's not what somebody like Ben Shapiro wants. There have been protests all across the world in support of Palestine. I saw, you know, last week we're in France. It's illegal to publicly protest in support of, of Palestine. Um, do you, hmm, how should I, how can I word this? What do you think of Black Lives Matter tweeting out their support for Hamas with the attacks? What do you think of that? I mean, that's really a stupid thing for Black Lives Matter to do. I mean, what did they tweet out exactly? It was, it was like, we support, and then it was a picture of the paragliders coming in, and you know, yeah, that yeah. was when they shot every, you know, shoot people. So they were clearly condoning the violence Hamas committed against Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty bad messaging, I would say. <laughs> okay. Like, I, I don't know how people are supposed to take that, especially on October 7th or October 8th. You know, if you're trying to be supportive of the Palestinians, doing something like that is just stupid, especially in, in this country. It's like, of course, people are going to think you're condoning killing civilians. What do you think of Hamas? Uh, some people, hopefully some people are listening to this podcast who don't think like you and I. And so that means that they are justifying in their head, whatever mental gymnastics we all have going on, they've, they have justified in their head that justice needs to be served for October 7th. And we got to go mm-hmm. in and we got to serve. Yeah, we bomb people and kill way more people. But the way Hamas did it was so barbaric. That's mm-hmm. what kind of what in their mind they're kind of thinking. So uh, they may think Kelly's having another one of these guys on who's a Hamas fan. What would you say to them if they said you're a, an apologist for Hamas? I mean, that's always the talking point when we oppose, because, you know, the root of my position on this is opposing U.S. intervention and U.S. involvement in this conflict. And the U.S. is very much involved in this war. The U.S. is always, you know, we give Israel $3.8 billion in, in military aid each year. They're trying to give them an extra $14 billion in 2021, after that flare-up I was talking about, we gave them an extra $1 billion. So the U.S. is not just complicit in this, but supports it, you know, 100%. So when, you know, you try to challenge the narrative, of course, everybody's going to call you pro-Hamas, call you pro-Putin, pro-China, pro-Saddam, pro-Assad, you know, that's always the smear. But I have no, uh, you know, affinity for Hamas. I mean, that's just completely ridiculous. I think what they did just made the situation much more worse. Now we're seeing all these people being killed and that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted to basically provoke Israel to do what they probably expected Israel to do. Maybe it's worse than they thought it would be, but they wanted Israel to kill a bunch of people to get the Arab world riled up because their only hope of actually taking on Israel is if Hezbollah, Iran, uh, you know, join in on the fight, you know, really join in on it, not just fire some stuff across the border. Um, but, you know, that that that's what they're trying to do. And you, and you have the other Arab countries starting to normalize relations with Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, the Saudis have been in talks to normalize with Israel. And they want to, you know, uh, disrupt all of that. So as the purpose was to get everybody worked up, and, you know, we're kind of feeding into, 
you know, you hear this a lot, you know, radicals on both sides feed into each other, Netanyahu and his reaction to what Hamas did. It's kind of feeding into their narrative. It's just, they're feeding off of each other to keep the death and destruction going. The thing to do would be to, if you want to take out Hamas, if you want retribution, what Israel should have done is, you know, take out the people that are in Israel. Cause you know, after October 7th, there was a couple days where there was still Hamas guys in Israel, you know, take care of that. And then you have to kind of, you know, think for a minute and not just start obliterating Gaza. Cause that's what they did. And, and, you know, we just see how things are going now. Even the, a lot of people in the West and the U S who are very pro Israel are starting to question things when they see how many people are being killed. Um, yeah, so the idea, it's also just kind of a very low-level way to think, is that if somebody's not on, on Israel's side, they must be pro-Hamas. That's just, you know, because there's a lot of Palestinians who are not pro-Hamas. Um, but, you know, and that's not to say that Palestinian, you know, resistance to their military occupation is not justified. I think there is legitimate resistance that Palestinian people could take. Um, I would never condone or support any you know killing civilians because that's just morally i'm opposed to that um but you can't blame if you live in the west bank and you know you have these people pushing you out of your homes and and there's israeli troops that occupy your town i mean what would americans do in that situation i mean i think if americans were in the situation that people aren't in, a, in, in gaza especially american christians uh, you know just imagine the the reaction that there would be there um so you have to look at this in context as well um, but yeah, and I think when it comes to the leftists that, that are, you know, pro-Palestinian and, and they've just said, you know, a lot of stupid things about the saying the resistance, you know, so I say some resistance is justified. I'm not talking about paragliding in and killing, you know, shooting into people's cars and shooting into people's homes. You know, that's something I would never, never say is justified. Just like I say, bombing a home full of civilians is not justified. Um, you know, it goes both ways. Look at the death toll. Now that's another thing. Now you have Biden is questioning the death toll coming out of Gaza. But if, if we're to believe it, over 8,000 people have been killed, including 3,500 children about, and you know, this is, if you look at the scale of the bombing, if you look at, you know, you, you could see Palestinian journalists on Instagram, going around from airstrike site to airstrike site, seeing children, dead children. I mean, it's horrific what's going on there. There's clearly mass destruction. And I know the UN and all the NGOs that operate in Gaza say the death toll is reliable. Of course, you know, people would say, oh, that's the UN, you know, but, you know, if you look at the conflicts in the past, the Gaza's health ministry has always put out the death toll has been about what it is confirmed by the UN afterwards, or even sometimes by Israel. Um, so, you know, we just have to look at what's happening here. And it's, you know, my position again on the conflict is that I don't want my tax dollars, my government having, you know, supporting what Israel does to the Palestinians. Um, and that is not a pro Hamas position. It's an anti-interventionist position. Okay. One of the descriptions I have given when discussing, because a lot of people I talk to in my everyday life don't, I won't say they don't care. Uh, but they don't really have a strong opinion necessarily on being pro-Israel or pro-Palestine, either side. One of the things I stick to is, yeah, they attacked him October 7th, but prior to October 7th, Israeli, I Israel routinely 
fucks Palestine up. They have a 20 to 1 kill ratio. So, yes, Palestine does, you know, they are violent, uh, you know, oftentimes towards Israel. They do, in fact, hate them. I mean, whether or not they have warranted rationale for that is a different topic. But there is violence from Palestine toward Israel. They do kill people. However, it's about 20 to 1 based on the numbers I've seen. Is that an accurate number? And if that's accurate prior to October 7th, how are the majority of those deaths occurring? Yeah, so in the recent conflicts, again, since they've really been doing these airstrikes in Gaza, that is about the ratio. I mean, there's sometimes where, uh, you know, nobody's killed in Israel and they they do airstrikes in Gaza that kill a few dozen people. So that was why the October 7th attack was so shocking and because it was they killed a lot of Israelis. They say the number is 1,400, and that is a lot of people. Um, you know, nobody thought Hamas could pull something off like that. And that's another thing is the intelligence failure. You know, how could how could that have happened? And Netanyahu, because of that, his, you know, pol- his political career um, is over after this war, unless, you know, he redeems it in some way. But uh, everybody's, you know, really mad at Netanyahu and the government. If you read Israeli media, there's tons of criticism, you know, saying, how could you have let this happen? Um, so, yeah, but you mentioned the kill rate and and now look at it now. So 1,400 Israelis. And I think the numbers are, they're saying about 9,000 people in Gaza have been killed so far. Um, and yeah, that's a pretty, that's about almost 10 to one now. And, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to stop. Oh, on the, Another thing that's happening now, it's not just the air campaign now, Israel has gone in on the ground. And this is something they have not had much success with before. Um, That was the 2014 war. They went in to Gaza and they took pretty heavy casualties. So then they just resorted to airstrikes. This time they went with the huge airstrikes and and the ground invasion now at the same time. Uh, It's not really clear what's going on. They're being very vague about everything. I think Israel has said so far 22 of their soldiers have been killed. So when it comes to hand, you know, going in and fighting hand-to-hand combat, the casualties I think will be more even then. But and I'm just talking about the fighters on the ground. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, who knows how this whole thing's going to play out? Then there's the whole there's a whole another conversation is the risk of regional escalation. You know, <laughs> that sounds like it could be a big one. Also, this bill they're passing is including money for Ukraine, Israel. In Taiwan? So, I mean, like, not just regional, but, like, I don't, this doesn't, uh, I'm not the smartest guy out there, but this doesn't appear to be heading in a good direction. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's really not. Again, like, like I said, before this attack happened on October 7th, it felt like we were getting somewhere that the Ukraine aid might be disrupted. But, um, yeah, so Biden has requested this $105 billion bill to fund the Ukraine war to fund Israel's war in Gaza, to also give military aid to Taiwan to, you know, start get working on provoking a war with China. And also there's some border security money in there, try to entice the Republicans. It seems right now they might have a hard time getting this thing passed. The Republicans have introduced not uh, at least some Republicans want to just pass the Israel funding on its own. It's like $14 billion. Um, which is a lot of military aid to be giving Israel considering what they're doing right now. You know, again, just this, this shows how the U S has been shipping. They say the Pentagon said the other day, they've basically been shipping weapons to Israel every day since this thing started. 
So, you know, I think it is a fine when we talk about how people think about this conflict. I think um, even being pro-Israel and living in the U.S. and and but not thinking the U.S. should be involved, you know, is a fine non-interventionist position. But the fact is, is that the U.S. is so involved in this. And this is what stirs up all that anti-American sentiment, you know, in the Middle East. And right now, the U.S. has bases in Syria and Iraq that are coming under attack almost every day. Um, guys are just sitting ducks out there in those bases. Um, so, you know, this could really spar- spiral into a big war. Biden launched airstrikes in Syria the other day. And, um, you know, the fact is we are very much involved. So we need to oppose being involved and, and you know, get out of this mess. But realistically, I mean, that's just not going to happen. So we just have to hope that this thing doesn't spiral into something really big. It would be very confusing for me to see China swoop in and help the Muslims. Imagine being in the Uyghur camp and saying, what the hell? Now we're on team Muslims. I mean, that doesn't sound like it adds up. (laughs) Do do you think China would just come in and be like, okay, we're on this team? No, I, I think, you know, China a lot of people are saying this might turn into world war three, but I don't, I mean, there's a risk of Russia because you have Russia's in Syria. So there is a risk of Russia somehow getting involved and they've been pretty strongly speaking against uh, Israel's war in Gaza. But from China's perspective, China's always been, uh, you know, they say that they're neutral between the Israelis and the Palestinians. They've definitely criticized. They say this has gone further than Israel defending itself. Um, but China China is not stupid enough to intervene in this thing. You know, if they're big, they're worried about the U.S. building up in Southeast Asia, which has been really ramped up in recent years. The U.S. adding new bases, giving military aid to Taiwan, sending more troops to Taiwan, you know, just a few hundred. But that's pretty significant uh, in this grand scheme of things. So they see this happening. You know, they're not going to start sending their resources there. They're just going to sit back and, and watch and and say that they're neutral and that they want peace. That That's their position, because right now the rest of the world is seeing what the U.S. has been saying about Russia's war in Ukraine and all this rhetoric about this rules based order. And now you see the U.S. supporting this, what is clearly a mass slaughter of children in Gaza. So right now on the world stage, you know, the U.S. looks like big hypocrites. You have a lot of countries in Latin America severing diplomatic relations with Israel. So, you know, it's just not in China's benefit to intervene and get involved in this conflict when they can kind of just sit back and let, you know, the mess, uh, you know, hurt the U.S. on the Again, when we're talking about global, you know, geopolitics here, China could come out of this uh, much better if they just stay out of it. This is a random question, but who really profits off of war? Well, I mean, a lot of people profit. And in our government, not a lot of people, I should say, because that insinuates that somehow we profit. Um, you know, the, they're, the people that really profit are the ones within this kind of crony system, This what they call the revolving door. Um, you know, a lot of people always ask me, uh, about kind of big picture, like why is this happening? Why are we constantly involved in wars? And sometimes you you naturally think it must be something deeper, some sort of big, you know, grand conspiracy. But if you just look at things on face value, uh, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who has been overseeing the war in Ukraine, which has, you know, dumped 
tens of billions of dollars of weapons into Ukraine. And it's created this demand for all these weapons and including weapons that were becoming obsolete, the Stinger anti-aircraft missiles that are made by Raytheon that the U.S. gave the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Uh, they haven't been in production, I think, since the 90s. Now, all of a sudden, they've been you know, pouring them into Ukraine, and Raytheon's got to make new ones. They're actually calling in engineers who retired to make them. Um, so it's created this demand for all these weapon systems, and not just, uh, you know, so they're they're getting contracts to buy for weapons for Ukraine. They're getting contracts to replace the weapons going to Ukraine. They're getting contracts from the European countries. And where did Lloyd Austin work before he was the Secretary of Defense after his military career? He was on the board of Raytheon, <laughs> and it's, you know, this is corruption, very blatant corruption. It's right in front of our eyes, and this is something that you. You saw for a very long time more at, at a lower level in the in the Pentagon that you would see, you know, an assistant secretary of defense worked at Lockheed Martin and then ended up in the Pentagon. And now we're seeing it again much more blatantly. The secretary of defense and this uh, really started uh, under Trump. James Mattis was I think it was General Dynamics. He was on the board of or he was working for them. He became the secretary of defense. He resigned because Trump said he wanted to leave Syria or something. And he went right back to his old job. At, 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 I, I want to say it was General Dynamics. Um, and then Trump's next guy was Mark Esper, who I think he also was a Raytheon guy. So now we're seeing this revolving door right at the, the highest level in the Pentagon. And so I think that explains a lot of it. Um, when it comes to the tensions with Russia and China, there's this big $1 trillion plan. I think it might be even $1.4 trillion to, to modernize the nuclear triad, the nuclear arsenal. So they benefit from the tensions with the nuclear powers. You know, they're all just looking for justifications to build more weapons, to modernize weapons. And, um, you know, that's a lot of what this is about, especially with China. I mean, China's uh, the new big threat. You know, the Pentagon says they're the biggest threat and Russia comes in second. So we have to build up new bases, new weapons, new technology, all this stuff, new ships for China. Um, so I think that is a big part of it is the profit motive. Is it important how popular a war is when the, the popularity for the Ukrainian war started to plummet? It seems the administration is like, oh, oh, okay, we might as well back out of that one. It's not popular anymore. Let's find a new war. Is that overly simplifying it? I think it does matter to an extent um, that, you know, they do need, again, at some level, the popular support for the war. And because of just the way the propaganda works in the U.S., like it is pretty easy to propagandize people into saying, yeah, we should support Ukraine. You know, they were invaded by Russia. Again, if you're not paying attention to the conflict, that seems kind of pretty reasonable. Um and that's why there is so much propaganda and they try to change the language. They call everything unprovoked now. Russia's unprovoked invasion. They call the Hamas attack unprovoked. You know, they're trying to change the language. Provoked doesn't mean justified. You know, everything, most actions, you know, murder is usually provoked unless somebody's a sociopath. Um, and finding the motive, you know, you have to find the causes of war if you want to stop them or avoid them. So, uh, Again, it's just this. I think, I, I think the propaganda when it comes to the internet and how the U.S. government and the the Pentagon specifically, because they have a lot of psychological operations, 
Um, I think they're very involved in crafting the narratives that we see online. Uh, but these days, it's much harder for them to do. I mean, we're seeing it right now with Gaza. Again, you can go on Instagram and watch kids being pulled out of rubble, uh, pulled out of rubble that was probably created by an American-made bomb that Israel dropped on this building. Um, so they're, you know, they're going to do a lot to try to counter those narratives. Um, so, but yeah, I still think, I think the propaganda is a big part of it. While listening to the Ben Shapiro podcast last week, I heard he played some audio from one of, I think it was one of the Hamas leaders and they were negotiating, attempting to negotiate for the return of some hostages. And what I heard now, obviously, I feel differently about this than Ben Shapiro, was the Hamas leader saying, okay, if you guys just stop all the violence, an end to all the violence, we'll return all the hostages immediately. And Ben, ben Shapiro was literally like, ha, they think it's that easy? Ha, like he didn't, there's no desire to do that. Has that been your, was that a, a okay description of, of what the negotiations that you know of have, have went on thus far with the hostage hostages being returned potentially? Yeah. Um, so that's another thing when you asked me earlier, like a critique of what those kind of guys are saying, you know, if they care so much about the hostages, I don't think bombing the hell out of the place that they're being held hostage is a good strategy. Um, and so if you have a Hamas guy saying that, you know, who knows if that's if they're actually going to release them, but I think that is a good jumping off point for negotiations. I mean, I don't know. It's just like, and that is the the narrative that we see is that, you know, there's no negotiating with these people. We see Netanyahu said that the other day, you know, no ceasefire. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that, again, it just doesn't seem, it seems counterproductive to me if the the hostages are the big concern, if they're really what they care about and why are they just bombing the hell out of the place? Um, and there's also Americans in Gaza, you know, Palestinian Americans that are trapped in Gaza. They, they just actually let some people out into Egypt today that they said were dual nationals. I have to look into that to see if Americans were let out, but we never hear about them. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think, uh, it just seems like the idea of negotiating is just completely out the window. They just want blood right now. Dave DeCamp, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Before we wrap things up, if someone's interested in learning more about, you know, the evil side of war, I guess the evil side would be a way to say it, but if they like what they hear from you, Dave, and they want to follow and learn more from you, how can they do that? Yeah, again, all my writing is at antiwar.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DeCampDave. Listen to my show. It's just kind of a daily short 25-minute uh, update on, the again, the top foreign policy news of the day. And, um, you know, from our, again, from our perspective, but I try to keep it as, uh, you know, unbiased as possible besides that, besides being anti-war. Um, so, yeah, go check all that stuff out. Good stuff, Dave DeCamp. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.